Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Ryan Grimm. Welcome to Deconstructed. My new book, The Squad, AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution, comes out next Tuesday, December 5th, and it traces the recent history of the progressive movement in America. This week, the D.C. bookstore Politics and Prose held an event to launch it, moderated by political commentator Crystal Ball, my co-host over at the Breaking Points Network. If you're thinking about buying the book, the favor that I have to ask of you is this. Please don't procrastinate, because sales this week are the most important ones for the bestseller rankings. And if it does well out of the gate, then it does exponentially better over the long haul. So a sale today is actually worth like 20 sales in a few weeks. I've already gotten paid for the book, but if it does well, that means I get to write another and then another. So if that's an outcome you'd like, go ahead and get it soon. All right, I think that's a hard enough sell for now. For this episode of Deconstructed, we'll be playing the audio of the conversation I had with Crystal. Hope you enjoy it, and a big thank you to those of you who can help make the book a hit. Please join me in welcoming Grim and Ball to the stage. Thank, thank you, everybody. And thank you, Crystal, for uh, doing this with me. Uh, so I moderated a, a politics and prose talk with Naomi Klein a couple months ago. Some of you may have been there. And I played the role of Crystal, and so I am stealing her format for how she did it. I thought it went very smoothly. Not a whole lot of reading, because if you want to read the book, you can press play. Because I actually read this version of the audiobook. That was quite a trying experience. Uh, so I hope it's, hope it's worth it for you. It took nine days of just talking into this microphone nonstop. So therefore, I won't sit here for nine days and read the entire book to you. I'm going to do a couple minutes, about five, five to six minutes at the top. Uh, then Crystal and I are going to talk. So I'll start here with uh, chapter three, which is called uh, Occupation. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez awoke in her room in the Omni Shoreham in northwest Washington, a hotel that had played host to inaugural balls, presidents, and corporate conferences of every kind. It was now the temporary home of the 62-member freshman Democratic class of the 116th Congress. They had all been elected exactly one week earlier, on November 6, 2018, in a wave that swept the party into power. The class was here for freshman orientation, learning the ins and outs of federal lawmaking, along with the basics of putting together a staff, what kind of budget was available, not much, the housing situation, not good, and the all-important lottery, at which incoming members would draw lots to determine who won the least bad freshman offices. But Ocasio-Cortez had something bigger on her mind that morning, and she was wondering if she had the courage, or perhaps the stupidity, to go through with it. Her plan to occupy the office of the incoming Speaker of the House had not been put through much of a deliberative process. Yet neither had much else, and here she was, weeks away from being sworn in as the youngest woman ever to serve in Congress, already an international rising star. So why overthink it now? The previous Friday, her chief of staff, Shroikat Chakrabarty, had taken the idea of an occupation to Ocasio-Cortez. Sunrise is doing this protest, he told her. It's in Pelosi's office. And they were just hoping that you could, like, tweet about it or something to support them. But, you know, maybe you could even join them. But I know that it'd be kind of crazy. And she was like, what? Yeah, that sounds awesome. And she was really into wanting to join them. The radical activists were taken aback. Are you guys sure? Sunrise co-founder Varshney Prakash wondered when she learned Ocasio-Cortez would be joining them. Chakrabarty told me, like anyone else, she had some moments where she wasn't entirely sure. She was trying to figure out a way to do it that wasn't just seeming like she's yelling at Pelosi as her first action. I could tell she was sort of fading a little bit. So Sunday, Corbin and Zach and the Sunrise kids were at a church doing this all-day rally. And Corbin and Zach said, you just need to bring AOC here. She'll get so revved up. And that's exactly what happened. At the church, 
AOC felt the pulsing energy of the young people, most of them younger than her, and her shaky resolve to go through with the occupation stiffened. That night, still revved up, Ocasio-Cortez saw the news that Amazon had completed the national sweepstakes it had been running to pick a home for its second headquarters. The most likely contenders were always going to be Washington, D.C., where Jeff Bezos owned the local newspaper and needed friendly lawmakers on his side, and New York City. And Amazon announced that it would be splitting its so-called HQ2 between the two cities. At 11.40 p.m., Ocasio-Cortez fired off a Twitter thread that would derail the project. Chakabarty said she had not realized the AOC effect yet. The thing she actually tweeted was something much more qualified than what it got turned into. She had written, We've been getting calls and outreach from Queens residents all day about this. The community's response, outrage. Amazon is a billion-dollar company. The idea that it will receive hundreds of millions of dollars in tax breaks at a time when our subway is crumbling and our communities need more investment, not less, is extremely concerning to residents here. At 12.20 a.m., as her tweet and its thread rocketed around the Internet, she added that her complaints were not limited to Amazon and that she wasn't trying to pick a fight, but rather was just the messenger for her community. Lastly, she said, this isn't just about one company or one headquarters. It's about cost of living, corporations paying their fair share, etc. It's not about picking a fight either. I was elected to advocate for our community's interests, and they've requested clearly to voice their concerns. Amazon would soon pull out of New York with Ocasio-Cortez's opposition cited by many observers as the proximate cause. The next morning, on less sleep than she'd like to have gotten, Ocasio-Cortez was most definitely not sure about the Green New Deal protest anymore. In fact, she felt like she might vomit. What if she took the momentum that millions of people had built collectively and squandered it all for nothing? It felt like too much responsibility. The very fate of the planet was at stake, and she was running late. About five miles away, outside the Cannon House office building, about 200 climate activists, many of them high school and college students, had been split into two groups, had gone through security, and were waiting in the building's basement for the signal to march on the office of the speaker. That morning, they'd gathered at Spirit of Justice Park, a green roof constructed on top of a congressional parking garage across the street from Cannon, where they were met by Rashida Tlaib, soon to be sworn in to represent Detroit. Tlaib handed out Jolly Ranchers and rallied the crowd, telling the story of her own civil disobedience, which had led to the locking up of a corrupt Detroit billionaire. From there, she headed off to orientation, wishing the activist strength. Corbin Trent and Alexandra Rojas, founders of Justice Democrats, were on the sidewalk outside. Trent had nothing but contempt for the orientation process Congress was pushing new members through. If I were going to be an asshole, I'd say she's providing them with an orientation, he told me as I loitered with him and Rojas. He, Rojas, and Chakrabarty had all devoted themselves full-time to Ocasio-Cortez's campaign in the home stretch. Trent doing communications, Rojas covering field organizing and door knocking, and Chakrabarty overseeing the whole thing. They knew AOC well. Trent quipped, she's looking in the mirror saying, come on, Alex, you can do this, by way of explaining Ocasio-Cortez's tardiness. Would she do it, I asked. She'll be here, he promised. I want to read one very brief section, also from late 2018, early 2019, from another portion of the squad. This is uh, Chapter 7, The Benjamins. Oh. Not long after Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar were sworn into Congress, they began hearing from their new colleagues that one member of the House Democratic Caucus named Josh Gottheimer had particularly strong views about each of them. Many of his colleagues had particularly strong views about Gottheimer, but as far as they knew, he was just another member of the Democratic caucus. They would soon learn there was much more to him. Gottheimer had an intense hostility to the left wing of the party. He dubbed them the Herbal Tea Party. And he considered the progressive movement generally to be poisoned by anti-Semitism but he had particular animosity toward Tlaib and Omar. The pair were far too rough to Israel in their rhetoric, he complained, taking his beef to Majority Leader Hoyer on the House floor. Hoyer told Gottheimer to work out his problems with the two members directly, which Gottheimer took as a blessing from the party leadership to go to war with them. When Gottheimer reached out to meet with Tlaib, she was eager to take the meeting, hoping that a personal connection would help bridge their differences. On the day of the meeting, February 6th, 2019, 
Godheimer arrives with a colleague, freshman Elaine Loria from Virginia, and a white binder. Loria began by saying that she had met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu six weeks earlier. Tlaib tried to break the ice with a joke. How's the two-state solution going, she asked. (laughs) Netanyahu had recently been making it explicit that he was never serious about a two-state solution and that his real aim was to stall for time while Israel gradually annexed Palestinian land. The joke fell flat. Godheimer pulled out the binder, opening it to show Tlaib the contents. It was a collection of printed-out articles with with quotes from her and other lines highlighted. He began going through it line by line, occasionally misattributing quotes by Omar or other activists to Tlaib. Tlaib tried to reach Gottheimer on a personal level, telling him about her grandmother who lives in occupied Ramallah. He wasn't interested. He was using a very stern tone, like a father to a child. At that moment, I realized he's a bully, Tlaib later told me. He had a goal of breaking me down. I left feeling exactly that way. Walking out, she pulled out her phone and found the contact for Ilhan Omar. When Omar picked up, she could tell that Tlaib had tears streaming down her face as she recounted the meetings blow by blow. Tlaib warned her, if he asks you to meet, don't do it. Don't do it. Four days later, Israeli media reported that Kevin McCarthy, the House minority leader, had promised, quote, action against Tlaib and Omar for their criticism of Israel. My colleague at the time, Glenn Greenwald, posted the news on Twitter, adding, quote, GOP leader Kevin McCarthy threatens punishment for Omar and Tlaib over their criticism of Israel. It's stunning how much time U.S. political leaders spend defending a foreign nation, even if it means attacking free speech rights of Americans. Omar then shared Greenwald's post on her timeline, adding the commentary, it's all about the Benjamins, baby, a reference to the hip-hop song of that name, asked to clarify who's Benjamins, she was claiming had influenced McCarthy. She responded, APAC. All hell broke loose. Ryan, I think those two excerpts were a perfect way to jump off this conversation because you start with the sort of beginning of AOC's political arc, which you track with incredible insider reporting throughout the book. And also a recurring uh, nemesis, you might say, Josh Gottheimer, and also the influence of APAC and some of the affiliated groups. So it's a great place to start. Thank you so much for letting me be involved in this conversation. Congratulations on the book, which is fantastic, which I read cover to cover, and I encourage all of you all to do as well. I actually thought a good place to start was one of the questions that we got from you all, um, sort of a philosophical question about the book itself, which is, is the squad a brand or a moment? Is it something that can be nurtured and cultivated, or is it more of a progressive clique? In other words, what even is the squad? So I, I think I think for the context for that, the answer would be that I think all we have now are moments in the sense that we have these bursts of uh, activity that has its own life in the real world and, it, and then it has a second life kind of on social media that sh- which then shapes it back in the real world and then also shapes how people understand it. That goes back, we could start with like Occupy Wall Street was, it was a moment, but it was also something that changed everything that came after it. The, the Occupy moment is over, but, and as I write about in the book, you probably don't get Bernie Sanders without the Occupy moment. But you also wouldn't have either of them if the material conditions were not there to like ripen both of those, ripen both of those things. And so Black Lives Matter, again, the moment, but the moments that we live in after that are shaped by, by that moment. So I think on a political electoral scale, they are a moment. The arc of the book is kind of like mid-2015s, Bernie Sanders launching his campaign up through uh, the 2022 midterms, and that's kind of the moment. I think you could kind of see it kind of cresting in 2020 and breaking, and then after that moment, something new is born from it. That that is different for it having happened. Uh, Ilhan Omar told me, uh, as I was reporting this book, she's like, you know, there is no such thing as a squat. Yeah, I, I know that, but also there is. So th- there's, no, there's no regular meetings. Uh, there's, there's no kind of criteria for membership. There was a f- really, if people remember the Onion article from 2019, 
I forget which like 85 year old New Jersey lawmaker the Onion said was like appealing for membership in the squad. <laughs> and they then jokingly said, you're in, you're in, sure, you're in. So it, it, as Ilhan Omar's put it, it was, it's a media creation. And it was created by an Instagram caption. Mm. Like AOC posted a picture of the four of them and just wrote squad in the caption. And it took off from there. So mm. that's, that's where it comes from. So it is a media creation. It's also a creation of the political moment. But then as its adversaries identify it, they forge it into a thing. And so it, now it's a thing whether it wants to be a thing or not. Mm, interesting. I mean, a lot of the book, um, there's, there's several different narratives that are running. But one of them is this journey of AOC from what she thinks she is and what people project on her going in and then faced with both the reality of the job and also the reality of, own, of some of her own sort of personality traits. So talk about, you know, how she views the job in that moment where you were just reading the book where she's occupying Speaker mm -hmm. Pelosi's office and she's there with the activists, et cetera, to the moment where we find her now more focused on building relationships and trying to play the sort of more traditional political inside game. And w what I like about that moment where, the, where she occupies uh, the office and later in that in that excerpt, uh, I quote from her from her actual speech while she's in the office because I think it epitomizes everything so perfectly. Her whole speech while she's there is about how great Nancy Pelosi is and how much the, all of the climate activists are there to support Nancy Pelosi in her kind of pursuit of her climate agenda. So she really does want to be there, uh, potentially even getting arrested, occupying her office, but also as the person there supporting her. And part of her really, like, it's genuine. Like I, I, I contrasted a little bit with Obama who kind of people wanted uh, to be able to put whatever they wanted onto Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I think AOC genuinely feels like she can do that. Like she wants to lead a political revolution by just persuading everyone that it's the right thing to do. That's like she, she just... She's like, well, well, of course, Nancy Pelosi has been for climate, for a, a strong climate agenda for decades. Like, all we're doing is supporting her here. Mm. But at the same time, she also knows, like, she also doesn't want me occupying her office. <laughs> so this is, not, and so she, there's this, there's this tension throughout, and she talks about, and uh, her staffers will also talk about how there was a kind of marriage of convenience that, uh, kind of that you couldn't see from the outside. And both she and uh, some of the people from Just Democrats used that kind of same phrase. Mm. That like, in order to become a member of Congress, like she couldn't just, our system is not set up where a bartender can just win without any help from anybody else. Uh, and so there was this organization at Justice Democrat, and also nobody else could challenge Joe Crowley. Like nobody within New York politics could, ch ch could challenge Joe Crowley. And this is a point that, that she would make. Because if they tried, their career would absolutely be over. Like that's that's what it means to have a machine. Right. So it had to be someone from outside the machine. But if you're somebody outside the machine, somebody who didn't have a career had to be right. someone who had nothing to lose. Nothing basically. to lose. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. And th this organization, Justice Democrats, had launched. Kyle Kalinske actually helped launch them. Uh, <laughs> I, I was aware of that. Actually. They flew out of uh, they, out of and grew out of brand new Congress, which had tried to elect 435 kind of populists to Congress. That was their goal. By the by the end of the year, they realize they're on the brink of electing zero. And, they, and in the meantime, they had split into Justice Democrats, which worked on the Democratic side and brand new Congress, which stuck with the original thing of doing uh, candidates in every primary, regardless of the party. And so when they realized that they, they might get zero, uh, they then put all their resources into AOC. So, so when she then wins, the people that she knows are the people that supported her. She can't, she beat Joe Crowley. Going to work for her at that point in the Democratic Party would have been career suicide. And so it was very hard for her to find people from inside the party. So that brings them together. And it created, but from the outside, it looked like it was this kind of uh, revolutionary vanguard that had been well organized and kind of powered its way through. Uh, when in fact, the, the four members didn't really know each other. Right. And were there just kind of it was a coincidence that they all arrived on the same themes at the same time. And then they're expected uh, to work together as this media creation. 
And then immediately they're hit, starting in uh, January, with qu the constant question, are you anti-Semitic for not kind of condemning Ilhan Omar or for the, the Benjamin situation? And all, like the first six months are just consumed by attacks from APAC and its allied organizations. I want to pick up more on that piece in a moment, because one of the things that you and I have talked about is how much that theme runs through the book and how influential um, those organizations and the funding of those organizations and the funding of in primaries ended up shaping, um, you know, the Democratic caucus and their response to what's happening right now in Gaza. So I want to come back to that. But I thought this was a, a really good question as well that gets to some of the heart of the critique that the left has had of the squad. Um, the question here is, why haven't the progressives hijacked the Democratic Party in the manner of the Freedom Caucus, especially considering the comparably slim majorities of um, the 117th and 118th Congresses, um, asked Jonathan? Uh, well, partly Democrats are just different, and they're always going to be different. Like when you tell, if you tell the Freedom Caucus, look, if you don't support this thing, the government's going to shut down. Or if you don't support this thing, we're going to have a global financial crisis and we're going to def default on the debt. Uh, their, their claim of being okay with that is quite credible. I'm like, all right, fine, go ahead. Do, mm -hmm. it, do it without me then. So Democrats have always had that, had some of that problem. Because you can always come back and say, well, all right, here, we're giving you this. And it's so easy to whittle them away. So that's the kind of, that's one, that's one structural problem that they have. But then just if you think about the timing when they came in, Donald Trump is president. And so they, it's not as if they're going to kind of hold up legislation and get a Democratic president to sign it into office. That only, that only comes later. And so the, the, their first six months, they're really in this kind of two-front war, one with, with APAC, which is keeping them on their heels and kind of making it harder for them to kind of organize a kind of offensive forward-thinking strategy because it's just every single week it's just they're playing playing defense but then also this constant battle uh with with nancy pelosi which is which breaks out in the press and ultimately ends with a couple of the staffers being pushed out of the office and things really shifting around so then soon after that the uh, presidential campaign picks up and so at that point the squad three of whom endorse Bernie Sanders, Ayanna Presley with her eye on Massachusetts politics and a p potential Senate seat. She's like, oh, Elizabeth Warren getting a nomination, mm -hmm. a Senate seat opening up? Yes, I endorse Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> so three of them endorse Bernie Sanders, and they really believe that he can win the nomination. And he comes within you know, a hair's breadth of winning that nomination. Democratic primary voters are much more affectionate toward the Democratic Party than Republican primary voters are. Like, it, if you watch Republican primary ads, they're all kind of running against the Republican Party. Like, to them, the Republican Party is just as bad as the other elites. And wh whereas the Democratic Party, if you're considered not a good Democrat, like happened to Nina Turner in her special election, then a lot of kind of normal Democratic primary voters are going to reject you. So Bernie Sanders running as an independent Democratic Socialist who caucused with Democrats had that uphill climb. And so... You had he and the squad constantly trying to assure Democratic primary voters, like, we're not radical. Like he, and, you know, he gave that speech. I'm just running on the legacy of FDR. Mm. And so if you're trying to convince the Democratic Party that you're, you're good Democrats, you're just a lot more kind of Democratic socialist and you just want kind of a higher minimum wage, you want Medicare for all, you want a Green New Deal, but you're, you're a Democrat, then that makes it harder at that point. And that's where you hear some of the, the stuff that she'll get criticized for. She, when she said, uh, you know, I think she, she called Pelosi mama bear at one point. People <laughs> have never forgiven her for that. That was while Bernie was, well, it looked like Bernie might win the nomination. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to win the kind of the normie Democrats over mm. into the camp to say, no, 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 we're, it, the water's fine. We're, we're, we're not threatening. We're not dangerous. <laughs> we love Nancy Pelosi too. <laughs> and then, of course, he, he, within, within three days, there's that massive turnaround. Uh, and it and it all it all collapses. So then, 2021 uh, becomes their opportunity, and they did then. And I have some interesting examples of it in the book, particularly around the American Rescue Plan. There was so much outside pressure and anger about, particularly the $15 minimum wage not being kept in 
the legislation that when uh, Manchin came back and tried to pull a lot of the unemployment benefits out, uh, Schumer went over to the House and, and said, look, Manchin's not with us unless we do these massive cuts to unemployment benefits. And Pramila Jayapal, the Congressional Progressive Caucus Chair, was able to tell Schumer, if he does that, it's like, you're not, I'm fine with it. You know, you're, I mean, I'm not fine with it, but you know, don't worry about me. I'm, I'm still with, with you. But you're going to lose the squad. Mm. And it's going to go down. And because there was so much outside pressure and anger, that was a credible threat. And Manchin caved on it. And, this, and hundreds of billions in unemployment benefits went through. So there, there were moments where it could happen, but it, was, but it was never done in a way that kind of made kind of the outside folks happy. Because they still didn't get the $15 minimum wage. Right. So from the outside, people were still like frustrated about it. What does AOC think of these critiques? That's a good question. Um, I mean, she, she's answered some of them in, in, in some interviews. Uh, I think she thinks a lot of them are unfair, that a lot of them are people who are making kind of bad faith arguments kind of to feed algorithms and like get, you know. For clicks. For clicks, basically. But she, I think she thinks some people just don't kind of understand like what, she's dealing with on the inside, what it's like to be an insi in, inside legislator. Uh, but I think also, I think she thinks some of it is fair. But there also is, there's no coordinating mechanism. And she has talked about this as well, that say back in the 1960s, you had major mass organizations that had steering committees that were in contact with each other, that were setting ambitious strategies and tactics and then executing them and had the manpower to do it. Uh, you know, they had the grassroots kind of mobilization to do it. That doesn't exist now. Like, what has replaced that is basically Twitter. Mm. And Twitter is reactive. So Twitter usually can give feedback to legislators uh, after it's too late. Right. Like after, they've something, something after they've done people something that people are unhappy people about. Want. Yeah. And, didn't, and wouldn't have known why, why did you do this thing. Now, at that point, it's too late. Yeah. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We got a couple questions in this regard, uh, but, you know, you track how AOC, she gets elected. She's instantly, I remember watching, she was then on Morning Joe and suddenly everyone's like, oh my God, who is this person? And she's instant media star and getting, you know, all of these, uh, this interest in social media followers and mainstream press really excited about her. And she's kind of knocking it out of the park, interview after interview. And then she sits down for one mm -hmm. interview and gets asked about Israel and Palestine. And that's your jumping off point to talk about the way that that conflict has both been um, uh, a difficulty, a challenge for members of the squad and sort of the, the squad adjacent members as well. But also how strangely, because there was so much organization on the other side trying to enforce unanimity on the topic, mm -hmm. it actually strengthened their spine in terms of their position. Talk about a, a little bit about that, starting with that moment with AOC, which is incredible. Yeah, so... It started really with the Great March of Return, which people have, a lot of people missed it happening in real time, but now with the war going on currently, people have looked back and said, oh, that, 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 was, an, that was an interesting development. If you don't know what the Great March of Return was, that was a, a, a civil society-led initiative in Gaza 
that came, kind of came from the grassroots where people would say every Friday, uh, we're going to go near the fence and we're going we're gonna to picnic. It's going to be a joyous thing. And then we're going to march nonviolently to the fence. And we're just do this every Friday. Just, and we're going to look out at the places where our parents and grandparents used to live. This will be a, a fun community event, but also symbolic of uh, our, our hope that one day there will be peace and we can return. And the Israeli uh, troops uh, started shooting. And every, so every Friday they'd start shooting. And it became this kind of infamous thing since then where eventually they started shooting. They started aiming for legs. And so it created, then, then they shot out so many people's legs that in Gaza you'd have, it, it just became a very regular thing to see people going around with, you know, missing one or both legs. Uh, the number, the UN has the numbers, but they're, they're astronomical. And so after one of these uh, mass shootings, I think 60 people were killed. And these are sort of nonviolent, you know, you know, there's some stone throwing, and, but, you know, generally these are, these are not kind of Hamas-led actions. Hamas eventually reluctantly supported them, uh, but, it, they had, but it, there was nothing armed about them. And so AOC responded on Twitter saying, it's appalling that 60 nonviolent protesters were killed in this Gaza demonstration. And it's appalling that there's so much silence from so many here in New York City about that. And that created a lot of interest in this congressional candidate from the Bronx and from Queens who's standing up for the rights of Palestinians because it was so unusual. And so she then gets asked about that question on this, in this interview. And she's been nailing kind of interview after interview. And it, it initially it seemed like the biggest event that the night that she won her primary was Joe Crowley losing. It very quickly became clear after, as she was nailing all these interviews that the biggest event was actually her winning mm -hmm. and that Joe Crowley would be somebody that was like a trivia question a couple years later. <laughs> Does anybody know what he's doing? He's a, he's a lobbyist. Lobbyist, right? A, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's, Had to be. A, yes, yes, he's a lobbyist. <laughs> and so she's, so she's doing great in all of his interviews and then she gets hit with this question. And the, the, the Margaret Carlson says, uh, you used the word Palestine. What do you mean by that? And you can see her whole demeanor change where she's sort of like, I know that there are third rails everywhere on this issue. And I might have touched one, and I, but I don't know if I did or not. And she sort of tries to explain. She's just saying that she sees it if 60 people were killed at a protest in Puerto Rico or 60 people were killed at a protest in Ferguson, I would stand up for that. And uh, so I should stand up for it when it happens in Gaza as well. And she's like, yes, but you used the word occupation. What do you mean by that? And again, you see like, oh, God, what, what, what's, go what's happening here? And finally, she says, look, I'm not a geopolitical expert. Uh, this wasn't something that we talked about a lot at my Bronx dinner table growing up, which Summer Lee later told me the same thing. Just growing up in Pittsburgh, it's, it's not an issue that you're steeped, you're, you're steeped in if you're growing up in the African-American community in Pittsburgh. Uh, and, and so she just, at that point, they kind of pull her off the trail and she realized I need to start, need to learn more about this because clearly this is going to be a very big issue. And I think once you, once you're kind of pressed to look into the history and to look into the reality, uh, you're probably going to get pushed in the direction of saying that this, this is wrong. Uh, Jamal Bowman um, did, did an interesting interview recently kind of be who became one of the, you know, either the fifth or sixth squad member uh, who talked about his experience of visiting the West Bank. Mm. And uh, bizarrely, there are people who on the left who were angry that he even took that trip. But everybody who takes that trip and sees the West Bank in person kind of comes back changed because there are streets that you can't walk down. You know, if you're Palestinian, uh, there, are, there are front doors of Palestinian homes that are like sealed shut. Like so they have to go out their back door only. Like they can't go out through this street. Uh, different, so, you know, different streets are blocked off for people with different license plates. And you, and you see this up front, you're like, this is, this is wrong. It just, it, just feel, it just feels wrong. And so I think that uh, over the years, as they've learned more about the issue now, obviously Omar and Talib didn't need that education. Right. Um, but also as they, as they realize that, Right, this is this is going to be much bigger than I thought it was. 
like uh, one of the, and, and Kyle would vouch for this too. Well, Waleed Shahids, uh, who also helped launch uh, Justice Democrats, has said he always gets asked, "Why do you guys focus on Israel Palestine so much?" He's like, "We don't. <laughs> We're just always getting hit on it, mm-hmm. so we have to respond." So one of the questions that we got from the audience was, in your opinion, what is the reason that the Israel lobbying infrastructure has been so successful at enforcing narrative discipline? And I might add, as a corollary, what happened to John Fetterman? Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the John Fetterman story is, is in the book. Uh, and it's, it's part of, and this is kind of an answer to the question. So in, in 20, 2019, in direct response to Omar and Tlaib getting sworn in, the, the, the group Democratic Majority for Israel uh, gets founded. And they're, and they're pretty explicit that that was the thing that they were founded to push, push back against. The first money they spent uh, was later that year against Bernie Sanders in the presidential campaign. That was their kind of foray into it. Their first huge effort was trying to stop Jamal Bowman from uh, unseating the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Elliot Engel, one of the most talkish, uh, unapologetic defenders of Israel in, in Congress, and the idea that he could, that he could be beaten by a uh, former principal, nobody backed by Justice Democrats, was unthinkable. And so uh, DMFI spent $2 million plus in this primary, uh, but he still ended up losing, even lost in, uh, in heavily Jewish precincts. Uh, and so it, it was a, ended up being a blowout, something like something like 15 points. And in the wake of that, DMFI, which was kind of an offshoot of APAC, and APAC realized, okay, we need to. We, this two million dollars is not going to cut it. Like we need to come in here with some serious money. Mm. And so in in the next cycle, the 2022 cycle, DMFI again came up with something like 10 10 million dollars, so to spend some affiliated. Uh, uh, groups came up with another couple million, but APAC launched its own super PAC, which was new in its history. It had always been purely a br- grassroots organization with chapters and subchapters all over the country. And they launched uh, the United Democracy Project Super PAC, which they put more than $30 million into and put almost every penny of it into Democratic primaries, trying to uh, knock out progressive incumbents or to stop progressive challengers. Uh, from from winning primaries, and that's just an absolutely enormous amount of money. Like the organization J Street, which was set up to be a counter to APAC, uh, told me that they they had seen what happened in 2020, and so then they organized their own super PAC to try to defend uh, progressive candidates uh, who who they who they felt were strong on Israel. That they felt the the argument that that APAC is pro-Israel is a misnomer. That mm-hmm. APAC is actually leading Israel in a direction that's not only going to be harmful for the Palestinians, but also for Israel. And so J, J Street was able to raise about $2 million. So they thought DMFI will have $10 million, we'll have $2 million. DMFI's positions are extremely unpopular, and so they have to spend much more money in primaries to overcome that. So at a five-to-one disadvantage, we can, you know, we, can hold, we can hold our own. Then when APAC comes in with 30 or $40 million, they they're just able to annihilate people. They spent... Uh, there may be some former constituents of Donna Edwards here. Uh, they spent, I think, $7 million to make sure that Donna Edwards did not get back into wow. Congress. Like a thir- she had like a 30-point lead, popular, former Democrat. Uh, she had voted. They didn't like a particular vote she took in 2008 on the a war in Gaza. Wow. And uh, wow. $7 million later, she was, she was beaten. Uh, Nita Alam, um, who was uh, she, her... Her good friends, I don't know if people remember, there was a, uh, this horrific and became a national story, a hate crime in, uh, in Chapel Hill or, or Durham, that area, um, where uh, three Muslim students were killed. Mm. And she was good friends with them. Uh, it, she became uh, the first Muslim uh, county commissioner in Durham. Uh, she was running for Congress and was expected uh, to win. Uh, it was popular with a lot of the de- Democratic voters in the area, they spent something like five or six million like to stop her from winning. Uh, candidates around the country started seeing this. And so there would be consultant calls that say, okay, how do we stop this money from coming in? Mm. Like, we can't raise enough to compete against it, but how do we stop it? 
say, well, one direct way to stop it is just to ask them how we can stop it. And so that's what Fetterman did. So Fetterman's campaign uh, reached out to DMFI. At the time, uh, Fetterman was running against a conservative Democrat named Connor Lamb, who was, his campaign was openly sending out memos saying, if we get super PAC support, here is how we can beat John Fetterman. If we do not get super PAC support, we will lose, and Democrats are going to lose this seat, and it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> like, they were very explicitly making this point, going on TV and, and circulating the memos to the meeting. We need super PAC money. We can't beat him without super PAC money. And the super PAC money they're talking about is DMFI for the most part. Uh, and mainstream Democrats, which is an, a mainstream Democrats pact is allied, uh, funded by Reed Hoffman, but allied with DMFI. So they go directly to DMFI and say, what does our Israel-Palestine position need to be, basically? And Mark Melman, the head of DMFI, later told, uh, later said on the record uh, that the meeting went very well, uh, that Fetterman's staff then sent over their Israel-Palestine platform. Uh, it was pretty good, not quite there, so they made some edits, kicked it back to the campaign, campaign checked, said, this is good, posted it, this is our position, and Connor Lamb, out of luck, we're not going to... We're not going to support you because this guy's, this guy's good enough. And you saw that happen in a lot of different races that candidates who hoped they were going to get APAC support to beat a progressive didn't because the progressive was able to persuade APAC and DMFI that they, were, that they had sufficiently uh, switched their position wow. on the issue. Wow. And you also have the story of uh, Summer Lee, who had sent out some pretty mild tweets but knew she was going to be a target. And just sort of accepted it and uh, was able narrowly to still win her race. You know, there are two reports of candidates who are running right now in the Democratic primary for Senate in Michigan, both of whom were reportedly, according to them, offered $20 million to drop out of the Senate race to primary Rashida Tlaib. I mean, that's like as naked as it gets, a donor calling you up. This is not even legal, by the way, to do, but a donor calling you up and saying, hey, I'll give you $20 million in your uh, primary campaign against Rashida Tlaib if you drop out here. Based on your reporting and your knowledge of how all of this has gone down in the past, I mean, are you surprised by just the brazen nature of that? I, not, not really, because it has taken Citizens United some time to kind of blossom into, you know, what it really could become and what people could see that it could become from the beginning, which is just the floodgates completely open. The first, the first cycle, 2012, I'm not, there were a couple Senate candidates that got involved with super PACs, but very few. It only started drifting into house races a couple cycles after that. Uh, But 2022 and, and APAC's spending of 30 plus million dollars kind of really, really changed, I think, the calculation because that is on the one hand so much money that it can reshape how the party positions itself on Israel-Palestine. It can purge like an entire uh, faction of of critics from the party, but it's also not much money. Like there's a, there is a small number of donors, the super PAC, uh, now there's, you know, a lot of APAC's money is, is dark money that goes for um, kind of general operations, but the super PAC money is, is public and you can see this person gave five million, this person gave one million, this person gave one million. And then you'll see like on a single day, and you can look at the FEC reports on it, on a single day, 30 different people gave 100,000. So you're like, oh, that, was, that was a, must have been a nice fundraiser somewhere. <laughs> uh, and so it only takes a few people spending a small amount of money to them. Right. Like they, it's a rounding error to them. Right. And once you can see you can have an impact, then you're like, oh, well, let's, let's do this again. And I think one mistake they feel like they made is they did not spend heavily against Ilhan Omar. Like they felt like she was uh, comfortably ahead in the race and that it was going to be a waste of money. And also that uh, she, in this, I get into this in the book, she and Pelosi had a very, close relationship, which might surprise a lot of people. And so they would have been going against Pelosi to go after Omar. Mm. She ended up only winning by a couple points. And so now she's facing the same person. And I don't think they'll, they'll make that mistake again. Like they're going to, I think Tlaib, and we can get into, we we could go race by race, but um, they, they feel like 
there's enough shot at, at winning and it's a it's cheap enough that why not that they may as well right. give it their yeah. best um, one of the questions we got from the audience is with the squad members vocally calling for a ceasefire and really leading the charge on that and challenging Democratic leadership, does this prove that electing progressives inside the Democratic Party is not a fool's errand? I don't have to tell you that, you know, there's a lot of progressive and lefty disenchantment with electoral mm -hmm. politics, disappointments with the squad's unwillingness and inability at times to challenge Democratic leadership directly. Um I, I have never seen them be as forceful in critique of Democratic leadership and especially President Biden as they have been in this moment with um, Israel's, you know, all out war being waged on Gaza. So what do you think of this person's question? Do you think it proves that that this was worthwhile? And what are some of the factors that led them to be so strong on this particular issue? So I the the, the structure that makes it that made it so difficult for so many years for progressives to get into office was just the the lack of resources and Bernie Sanders well Elizabeth Warren kind of in her 2012 uh, Senate campaign Bern, uh, you can read my last book for this and go Howard Dean with his first presidential campaign really kind of bringing small donors into the game Obama kind of showing that you can do it on a national scale in 2008 with small donors obviously combining it with a lot of Wall Street and other big donor money that that opens up the possibility uh, for outsiders without without money to then come in and challenge. Since then, you've seen some co-opting of that by the Democratic Party more broadly. I'm sure everybody here has their inbox completely carpet bombed um, with messages saying that the world's going to end. If uh, those are the those are the nicest ones. The others kind of look like phone bills or something. So, uh, you know, t taking something that that ought to be. Uh, a beautiful thing, you know, democratizing the process, bringing people in and then allowing candidates to take positions based on what people want rather than what their donors are demanding gets then contorted by consultants who then own the kind of big emailing firms who then blast your inbox. So that, that, that coupled with the fact that you can't really scale the squad in the sense that one reason that AOC can raise $10 million every cycle uh, is that she's AOC, but she's AOC because other people aren't. You can't have 250 people like that. It's just like there are, there is a limited amount of kind of stardom. That's the definition of stardom. Right. Uh, and so, but it 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 has built and and in in collaboration with the kind of Sanders ecosystem built at least an ecosystem that that is there and can be and can be triggered. When, when the moments arise. And so this moment is an example of that where, you know, if, if you didn't have them in office now, you know, where, where would the pressure have come from mm. on, you know, from within the Democratic uh, Party? And so it's, it's, not, it's not, I don't think it's ever worth giving up, but there are, the challenges, this system is very adaptable and the challenges are just going to keep, you know, replicating one of the things that you document in this book as well is obviously, you know, if you're going to accomplish change, you need allies who have power like the squad. And you also need outside groups that are going to pressure, put pressure on those in power and be in the right place when legislation is being crafted. However, just at the moment when, um, you know, you had a Democratic trifecta and progressives really needed to be flexing their muscles, a lot of these organizations were eaten up by sort of internal turmoil. And I've got a quote from you uh, from the book about what was going on within these organizations. You say, a sense of powerlessness on the left had nudged the focus away from structural or wide-reaching change, which felt hopelessly beyond reach, and replaced it with an internal target that was more achievable. One former executive director of a major nonprofit advocacy group told me he saw those in his organizations turn inward out of desperation. Maybe I can't end racism myself, but I can get my manager fired, or I can get so-and-so removed, or I can hold somebody accountable, he relayed. People found power where they could, and often that's where you work, sometimes where you live or where you study, but someplace close to home. How did this dynamic play out over the years that you're covering here, and how did it intersect with progressive goals getting accomplished through the House and in the, with this White House? Yeah, what, one uh, one interesting example that I have 
in, in the book is actually the Sunrise Movement itself. And the, the, the Sunrise Movement, one of the few organizations that endorsed uh, AOC and I think every member of, of the squad, they were an obscure group at that point. They were an obscure group when they occupied uh, Pelosi's office, at, but it was that moment was so electric that it kind of it, it allowed them to eclipse every other green group uh, in Washington and become these stars. And and you then had almost every Democratic presidential candidate endorse a Green New Deal. Uh, even Joe Biden's climate. Uh, platform was arguably like to the left of Bernie's from 2016. Like that's how far things had gone. Varshney, uh, the the head of Sunrise, was put with AOC on the like six person task force, to, you know, assigned to uh, with John Kerry to design the uh, uh, the Biden climate agenda. And Sunrise had this direct line to to Ron Klain, who, who was the White House chief of staff, who very much believed that. And for better or for worse, and whether it's right or wrong, that Sunrise represented a real youth movement and that their input was important and that winning them over meant keeping together the coalition that would be needed in the to pass legislation, to hold the House and Senate, to win re-election. And so Sunrise found itself in this unique and surprising position to them where they were constantly uh, able to like shape legislation as it was being crafted before it was even sent over to the senator house uh which is in many ways like a more important place to be in the beginning because the product that starts you know goes over to congress and then people push it to the left or push it to the right but where it starts dictates like 90 percent of where it's gonna end up and so they're they're right there in the beginning um shaping shaping it and it Right at that point, uh, the organization just implodes over you know, in, internal internal strife. That it had it was like the maybe sixth near implosion. There had been, you know, uh, there had been tussles over mostly over kind of uh, wages and and uh, white supremacy would be the, the would buckets. be the, the buckets, but they, and they'd be uh, tossed in together. Uh, but they had been suppressed first by, you know, we're doing the Green New Deal, we're doing Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, we're we're pushing this agenda. But once Biden gets into office, and this was this became true for a lot of other progressive organizations, there 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 was a lack of kind of faith in a, in a direction, and so there and so those uh, pressures that had been suppressed before kind of burst burst through, and so I talked to the political director of of uh, Sunrise who was. In, who said that right at this moment of maximal kind of influence, it turned out 50% or more of his time instead was directed toward like Zoom meetings, sorting out all the different issues that they were having back in Sunrise. And he was like, he, and as he put it, you know, if I'm not there, either the Biden White House is just writing its own agenda, which you don't necessarily want to leave them to that, or some big green groups are in there, or oil and gas groups are in there. And so... Uh, that that that's one example, but there are there are others in the way that the thing just kind of uh, falls apart. Yeah, um, we did get a really important question about your performance in the Eastern Shore boat docking competition, <laughs> but I will put that one to the side. Um, I'll let you comment on that well, separately. That's a that's a a Fourth of July event on yeah in Rock Hall, Maryland. So whoever asked that can ask it afterward while, will, <laughs> uh, while I'm signing their book. Um, one quick question for you: There's a lot of Joe Manchin in the book, and there's a lot of no labels. Uh, speaking of big money and their influence on politics and all of that, also in the book. And obviously, Joe Manchin just announced he's not running for Senate again. And there's a lot of speculation that he might try to run for president on no labels. Do you have any insight into whether that is real? It, it it has been surreal to to watch all of these threads of this book kind of burst into like full public view. Like I thought when I was writing it, are are people going to think I'm crazy for focusing this much on APAC's influence on the squad and those around them? Are people going to think I'm crazy for like chapters on the money behind No Labels and Joe Manchin and and Josh Gottheimer is a basically the founder of, uh, of no labels, uh, because covering, covering this stuff every single day, I saw how kind of determinative this money was 
not just influential, just dr completely driving things. Uh, and so I, even though people, even though this isn't the thing that gets into the news, I was like, this, it has, these have to be major themes of the book. And now sure, sure enough. Yeah. Uh, Nancy Jacobson, uh, and Mark Penn are looking to raise, yeah, what they, or they say, they claim they have raised $70 million to, to get, uh, Joe Manchin or whoever they can convince to be on their ticket in an effort that would, you know, the only way you can put it is it would help Trump get reelected. Like that's there's no other way to see that. Like some 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 of the weird ones like RFK, you're like I don't know how that plays out, but mm -hmm. no labels. That's this that's pretty clear. That's a purely um, a play that's going to hurt Democrats and help Republicans. And that 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 Godheimer and Mansion um, are are able to like participate in that so uh, actively, yet be held up as kind of these kind of paragons of uh, democratic virtue while folks like the squad who are, who are constantly bending over backwards against the wishes sometimes of their own base to support the Democratic Party are constantly being told that they're not good enough Democrats uh, is, is, is the kind of the contradiction that runs through the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the last question for you, and we'll wrap things up on this one. Uh, we started off talking about the squad as a moment. Is that moment over? And what do you think, you know, what do you think it looks like going forward? And what do you think of the sort of state of the progressive movement is at this time? I mean, I think the moment is over in the sense that that's what it was. But we're in, in the kind of post-Bernie, post-squad moment now that, that is still being shaped. I think it will be significantly shaped by the Democratic Party's response to the, the war in Gaza. And that is ongoing. And I, I, I fear that we're looking at the beginning like that as horrible as it is like that we might be only at the beginning because the disease has has set in but hasn't kind of taken over when you have destroyed the, not just the healthcare system but the sewage treatment system you know people talked about how awful fire festival was because they didn't didn't have sewage treatment for like two days or something you know this is endless and so i think some of it will be will be shaped by that uh, but I do think the new generation of voters is kind of structurally different than previous ones you know that people have always thought that young people are to the left but if you if you go back and look young people supported Reagan there's some debate over whether or not they supported Nixon but it was very it was very close it was not by no means a blowout for the for Democrats uh, it's just that the media likes to talk about the left-wing ones a lot more. And so it always seemed like generations were left-wing. These people under 30, 35 today really genuinely are much more progressive. And so that is going to mean that they're going to see the politics of the squad as just normal, like this is how politics ought to be. Like they're not going to see that as radical at all. And I finish toward the end of the book with this, this wild poll that came out in January in New Hampshire where they asked New Hampshire voters, who's the Democrat that you like the most? And you would not have expected it in 2018, but the answer was Ocasio-Cortez. Mm. And I, I asked her if she'd seen that poll, and she was like, I did see that. I, 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 I don't believe it, but I, but, I did, but I did see it. So that's, that's an interesting place that this goes. Yeah. Thank you, Thank Ryan. You. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. This episode was produced by Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Legal review by David Brelo and Elizabeth Sanchez. Leonardo Fireman transcribed this episode. Our theme music was composed by Barb Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com or at ryan.grim at theintercept.com. Put deconstructed in the subject line, otherwise we might miss your message. All right, I'll see you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.